0: Welcome to Flourishing Education, the podcast that provides you with conversations with experts and like-minded people who would like to see education turn into a flourishing environment for the well-being of all. So, are you ready? Let's start. hope you enjoy this session. Hello and welcome to another powerful, imperfectly perfect conversation. Um, Today I'm talking to Naomi Fisher. So Naomi is a clinical psychologist. She's an author of Changing Our Minds, How Children Can Take Control of Their Own Learning. Um, She works, so she specialises in responses to trauma and she works with adults and children, including those with diagnosis of special educational needs. Um, She has a PhD in autism, um, hands-on experience raising two children as self-directed learners. Um, Her writing has features in The Psychologist, Tipping Points, The Green Parents, um, SEN Magazine, Juno, to name but a few. So a very warm welcome to the podcast, Naomi. I'm delighted to have you here. Thank
1: you. It's lovely to be here.
0: Wonderful. So let's start with your book mm-hmm. and, um, being the mother of, um, you know, self-directed learners. Yeah. Um, that to me is really interesting because, mm-hmm. um, self-directed has all, you know, homemade, all of those words. Yeah, They have, it's such a spectrum, right? Yes. So could you talk us through what that means for you? Absolutely. And I
1: guess that's sort of where my book started really, because, We started off as home educators, my children were unschooled for the first six years that my son would have been in compulsory education. Um, And as time went on, it became clear to me that we needed to do something different as a family that home education wasn't going to carry on being the right choice for us, but I didn't feel that conventional school would be the right choice at all. And so I started to think about what I really thought was the key thing that I wanted to keep, the thread that I wanted to keep running through my children's education. And really what it came down to was the element of choice and autonomy, that children in all, and I I think as a psychologist, everything that I had learned about how people learn and how children learn in particular was about how learning is different when you choose it. And I had felt that from my own experience, that when you have a choice about what you do and when you know that you can stop, your relationship to what you're doing is different. And learning flows, learning flows better. And there's actually lots of research which shows and motivation, and I talk about it in my book, that when when a person has the right to choose, they learn much more effectively and everything is quicker. So I thought, okay, so that's the thread I want to keep going through my children's education. And we actually moved to France in order to get that initially, because um, at the time there wasn't a place that was the right kind of place for them and in France, oddly enough there are more self-directed schools or at least there were then of course Covid has really mixed things up for lots of people unfortunately but so we actually moved to France for two years and they went to a self-directed school in France which was a Sudbury model school so that's a school where there are no lessons there are no no curriculum there is there are a mixed age group of children in their school there were children from age six right through to 18 or 19 and then there are staff members and there's a, there's a system for rule breaking, there's a way that the school, there's a structure for the school, but there are no lessons and it is up to the children how they spend their time. And we did that for two years and then COVID happened and we had to come back to the UK really for other reasons not to do with school. And we were lucky to find this place in Hove, which is where we now live called the Self-Managed Learning College, which is quite different again. So we've had three very different experiences because at the Self-Managed Learning College, Um, there are learning advisors, and they all have different specialities, and the children and young people go there each day, and there are offerings that they can take part in if they want to. They can arrange one-to-ones with people if they want to, but they don't have to. So again, for me, that's the core thing. That's what's so important, that I know that my children are doing things because they choose to do them. And so so I felt... I mean, obviously, I wrote the book before we had this experience in Hove, but I felt like there's something really important here about choice and learning, which gets lost in a lot of the discussion about education. Because often when we're talking about education, people talk about progressive techniques and they talk about traditional techniques. They talk about whether we should be seating children in rows or whether we should be doing group work and project work. And for me, really, all of that is window dressing for the idea of can those children choose? can those young people or learners choose what they do and if they do then you know maybe they'll choose to sit in rows and do maths like that that's fine but can they stop <laughs> that's what's that's what the key is for me and that's where my book is really that's where i started
0: yes and i i have to admit i haven't read it all but i've, I've started <laughs> reading it and i'm loving it so i really you know advise all of the listeners to go and read it because it's, it's absolutely fabulous um and um, and i love that question of choice and autonomy because mm. um in the research i've i've been doing uh, at the university where i work um i've been trying to you know because of, i can't do any anything different mm. um i've tried to embed well-being in the curriculum using mm-hmm. five you know the well-being five well-being essentials mm-hmm. um so and um, and what we've noticed is we have no issue helping the students develop generally positive relationship uh sense of of belonging and mm-hmm. autonomy mm-hmm. but actually what we are struggling the most and i think that's inherited from the the educational system in, the, in or schooling system cuz yeah. i'm calling it educational system yeah. um that sense of Uh, autonomous motivation and competence and those two seem to be so intrinsically like linked yeah Yeah. Um, so I would love you to talk about that a little bit Mm. in terms of you know the choice and also we'll we'll go back to another question that came up for me which is is it that as a society we don't value our children as individuals who can Mm. make their own decision as well so if we start with that first mm. question and then we'll go to... The so next.
1: start with autonomous and competencies. is yeah. that right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I think it's unsurprising that young people arrive at university without any sense of autonomy or competence because the, the education system doesn't encourage that. So the idea, the theory, the self-determination theory, which is a theory about, about intrinsic motivation and how we nurture that, says that there are three main points to it. Relatedness, so relationships with other people, Autonomy and competence. And competence is feeling that you are able to do things. It's not necessarily being good at something, but it's feeling that you as a person are capable. And I think, unfortunately, the way the school system works is that people are encouraged to focus on the things they're not so good at. So there's constant there's a really strong focus on your mistakes. And I think that's particularly true in France, but it's true here too. Um, (laughs) You know, it's about your red crosses and you've got to improve. And that's where your focus is. And if you're weak in an area, that's where you're encouraged to put your time. So if you're a child who isn't learning to read, for example, you'll be spending more time learning to read. And actually there's research which shows that if people are allowed to focus on the things that they feel stronger in and that they're better at, other areas will improve the areas of weakness improve. We don't have to target everything. Whereas the education system is very much, a for folk, the school system very much goes by the policy that you need to target the things that you're weaker at. And that is how they will improve. Whereas I think in self-directed education, we're thinking more about the whole person and the overriding skills we want them to be learning, and I think the skills I want my children to be learning are that they can learn, they are capable learners, that they don't need somebody else to tell them what to do in order to be able to learn. So, and I think there's something, uh, there's something very unfortunate about the school system which takes Young children, who I think if you look at young children, most of them have utter faith in their ability to learn. They are capable learners. They go around exploring what they want to learn. They know what they're interested in. They they fit, shape the world around them often to their interests. You know, the small child who's interested in diggers will pretty soon have their family taking them to see diggers every day. They'll have diggers on their top. They'll have diggers at home. They're really good at creating the environment of the things they're really passionate about. And then we put them into school and we say, actually, that doesn't matter anymore. None of that matters as much as what we are going to do with you. And you have to leave your diggers at home. And in England, you know, you can't wear your digger top anymore. You've got to wear the school uniform that we choose for you and you have to do what you're told. And that is the route to success. So we tell them quickly that if you don't do these things, you won't be successful. And very quickly, you know, I know a little girl who came back from school in her first few days at school and said to her little sister, I don't know how you learn anything. You're just at home all day. <laughs> and of course, she just spent the first five of years of her life at home and playing and just being herself. But that is completely not acknowledged as important and not, there's no credit given to that in the school system. So the result is that children themselves learn not to value their choices they learn that their choices aren't good and that they would be ma- that other people can make better choices for them and if you spend 12 or 13 years teaching somebody that effectively without necessarily ever saying it as explicitly as that little girl was but all the messages the choices we make for you are better than the choices you make for yourself no surprise they come out at 18 and think don't know what i'm interested in don't know why I'm doing this <laughs> you know i I'm, for myself I chose the subjects I chose as a 16 to 18 year old weren't really what I was interested in they were what I thought I would do well in and also what I thought I was capable of because I was quite good at science and maths at school and so there was a kind of push towards well if you can do science and maths particularly as a girl then it's good to do science and maths because, you know, those are the hard subjects. So so I kind of ignored the fact I wasn't very interested. I actually loved maths. So maths I've always been really, really into. The science, not really, not so much so, particularly not physics and chemistry, which is what I did. So I did physics and chemistry, and ploughed my way through the physics and chemistry. (laughs) And then I got to university and I actually chose to study medicine. And I... Again, really, I didn't choose it because I was fascinated by the science of medicine or by I chose it because I was capable of it. And it was a hard thing to do. And also that I thought, you know, it might be nice to be a doctor. So I then got to university and I was studying stuff that I was not interested in at all the physio you know anatomy biochemistry just didn't interest me (laughs) and it was such hard work you know just like slogging through this stuff that was really tough um anyway i was very lucky to cut a short story cut a long story short I was very lucky because at the university I went to we got to choose a third year in any subject you want to do literally anything and I had a friend who chose engineering somebody else chose Chinese you could really do anything and I did experimental psychology and it was just like that was it no looking back because I was like this I love and because I love it it's just not you know I'm not slogging through anything anymore. And it really made me think, but I've got to this point in my education, you know, whatever I was, like 21 or something at this point, And it's never been like this before. Learning has never been like this before. And yet I'm a success of the education system. I did everything I was meant to do. I got my A's in my grades. I got these. And yet I've never been, I've never experienced how amazing learning can be when you're actually following something you're really interested in. So I think I've digressed a bit there from, no, but I think...
0: <laughs> 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 you illustrated with your own story so that's that's beautiful that's amazing um and I think that the, the reason the podcast is called flourishing education is because for me um that education is not just what we do in school but it's about mm. being a lifelong learner so yeah we we don't stop learning we stop learning when we die I, that's what yeah. I believe um yeah and and Interestingly, I set up this particular podcast and the, the conversations we're having today because I was having amazing conversations with with people, mm-hmm. and then I decided to record them to share them with with others. Yeah. Um, because what, what's hap- what is happening? I feel for me as as a mum in education, is that I, w- I have been a product of the schooling system and you oh. know we we'll call it educational system although yeah that, and so. I have never until recently questioned why I sent my children to school. Yeah. Um, I have two boys, one yeah. who is a perfect square that fits into the perfect <laughs> square hole that they yeah. do. so you know he's, yeah. he's academically brilliant, you know, a bit like what you're describing about yourself. Yeah. I've got another younger son who is has slower processing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So Has obviously been struggling much more. Yeah. And because I've been a working mum, you know, working eight till six. Yeah. Yeah. It's been about putting the children into into care so I can go to work. Yeah. Um, We've moved away from central Bristol to be in the countryside so we could get into a good catchment area. I've never questioned this.
1: Yes. Until
0: lockdown happened and then yeah. I started working from home yeah and I started looking at my kids going my god I've never had a a maternity leave as such because I was self-employed yeah. when they were yeah. little. and suddenly I've got these two you know a 13 year old and a 10 year old yeah and I've discovered who my boys are yeah you yeah. know and and also having the conversations like I'm having with you yeah that, you know what, Naomi, when they went back to school mm. after the third lockdown, yeah. I was so sad mm. because I just feel I've really connected mm. with the boys and I've I've loved being with them. I know I'm in a situation of privilege and that's not the case of many people. Okay. Mm. Some people are not lucky like I am. But I'm just thinking, you know, I I wasn't really comfortable sending them back. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I wonder whether there are a lot of parents like myself who mm. never ask themselves those questions. Absolutely.
1: No, I think there are. And I think that is why I wrote my book. And that's why it's called Changing Our Minds, because one of the things that struck me when I was looking. So when my son was small, we didn't pl- I wasn't planning this route at all. That wasn't my idea. Um, I thought he would go to school. We had a place at the local primary school, which was actually on the street we lived on. He could have lit- walked down. We would have seen him the whole way. It was a good primary school. Everybody wanted a place there. Um, but as we got closer, one of the things that struck me was that So I had taken, I had read loads of parenting books, you know, I'd tried to be, I'm sure like lots of people, we were sort of attachment parents when he was young, he was in the sling all the time, he's quite a high needs baby, and I tried very hard to be non-punitive with him, you know, we were talking about feelings all the time, I read that book, How to Talk So Kids Listen, or Is It the Other Way Around? And we were very much not, you know, we very much related to him in a respectful way. That was part of the core ethos that we were not punishing him if his behavior was difficult we'd be trying to look at why that was rather than cramping down on it and he was quite challenging as a little boy so you know it felt very much that there was a different route we could have taken which would have been very negative negative. and I, we made a, i made a really conscious choice that we are going to be positive with him he is going to be surrounded with positivity even if his behavior is very challenging and then i thought then we're thinking about school And suddenly I lost I would have lost any control about how other adults talked to him, because up to this point, if another adult was harsh with him or something, and it did happen sometimes, that was okay. We just could move away from that, put those people and we didn't have to stay there. But I would be delivering him somewhere where if his behavior was in quotes bad, they might shout at him. They might punish him and there would be nothing i could do about it and that really actually felt like hang on a minute there's a real disconnect here and also as with you've just said i realized i'm only looking at schools i'm not and they're all actually much of a muchness you know there's different they're a bit different they have slightly different ethoses but effectively they're the same system classrooms teachers lessons curriculum that's it you know playgrounds big groups of other children all the same age that's the choice and yet at no point were people saying oh are you going to send them to school no one ever asked that it was always which school are you looking at and I thought how have we been so conditioned and of course I know how we've been so conditioned it's because we went to school and one of the central messages of school all the way through is there is no other way than school you must be at school. If you are not at school, you will be a failure. You will be a dropout. You will never amount to anything. And we've all completely learned it. And I could see as well, just even going, like, we went to look around local schools, and it was funny how just doing that made me think this is really odd because it's almost like we go back into this relationship with the teachers again like we were children where we relate to them in a particular way and there's this whole thing of calling them miss this and miss that or (laughs) you know there's a whole power structure going on there and I knew because I was a psychologist and I'd worked with children who weren't very happy in school I knew how hard it was for parents to get their voice heard in those kind of settings as well that if you state concerns as a parent you'll often be your concerns will be dismissed, or you'll be told you're being overprotective, or you know. And I just thought, I just want don't want to give up this much power and influence actually over my child's life at this time in his life. So yeah.
0: Oh, yeah, what an amazing story, and and I think it's so for me. I just feel like you know I've I've got a thirteen year old. He's in year eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been going running together and chatting and so I think I'm starting to what I'm doing with my research is having an impact on how he's viewing things because he was saying questions asking me questions like so his school is asking him to think about GCSEs already for year year nine yeah and he was saying to me well you know they say I've got a choice but they tell me I've got to do this and this and this and this is that really choice mum? yeah Um, so we were talking about that, and I so I feel I'm already because of the conversations we were saying. Yeah. What does home education look like? Yeah. What does it mean for GCSEs? Yeah. Um, and you know, so so we're exploring because I don't really know. I think I'm not quite ready to to take them both out, and yeah. I don't know whether they want me to do that either. So I'll expect yeah. that. Mm. Um, but I, one of the things that you said is you said, you know, as a parent and obviously you're a psychologist, so obviously this would be the well-being of your children would be, I would imagine, yeah. more important.
1: Yes, certainly.
0: Parents, yeah. like listeners, you are not educators, like myself, mm. psychologists. Yeah. We will, we, some of us would have read some of the parenting guides mm-hmm. that we taught how to, you know, sort of try and, and be the best parent. Yeah. But I think one thing that I, think, I've think i been thinking recently, possibly because I've got two cultures, I've got the French culture and the English yeah. culture to compare. Yeah. Is that I think our society, like you were saying, the construct as our societies, mm-hmm. um, we condition so we don't question that. Yeah. But also there's almost no mention of you know work like from i don't know if you know uh, robert keegan's work on the the adult developmental stages mm. so the fact that we told as a as a child your child will go from like you know naughty twos to yeah. sort of like this and so yeah. most parents understand how a child grows up yeah but, you know, I wrote with my colleague how to grow grown-up for
1: yeah.
0: teenagers because I felt I was entering into the teenage years with, with my eldest. Mm. Looking at him, thinking, my God, you're changing physically. Yeah. And I'm not quite sure you're navigating a world that's so different from mine. Yeah. How do I understand you to be a mm. better parent? Yeah. But I think there's something that we have not been taught as adults, that actually there are stages in adulthood. Yeah yeah so I mean I I don't know how how do you feel about that the the cultural aspects and how do we challenge because I think for me change will not happen if we don't challenge the the cultural aspects and all of those points would you agree with that the cultural aspects
1: of yeah. how we
0: live and how we educate our children. You yeah, mean, and but... how we view our children, I guess, because there's also under, underpinning all of that, which is the second question I wanted to ask you earlier yeah. on, is that isn't there it still in our society this notion that you know we're talking in higher education about decolonizing the curriculum yeah but i i would argue that we need to decolonize the education system
1: absolutely i completely completely agree yes it's part well just as you were saying that about the culture i was thinking how valuable it's been for me to live in france for a couple of years and to see the culture in the uk from a distance again and to see how different things are and to see really the culture in France as an outsider as well. So you kind of, when you're in another country, you're, you're an outsider in both ways because you're not fully part of the French system, but you're also no longer part fully part of the British system. And I actually grew up in many different countries. I went to 11 different schools growing up in five different countries um, because my parents worked in development. So we were, they worked in Botswana and they worked in what was Zaire, now the Congo. So all the time growing up, I was kind of in between cultures, seeing things differently. And I think one of the big sort of influences for me was moving school so many times and seeing how differently each school did things and yet how everybody in the school accepted that that was the way you did things, that there was no, Questioning of any of it. And, you know, my schools were quite radically different. I went to a Waldorf school when I was quite young. Um, I went to a selective grammar school when I was in my teens and also a comprehensive school. And I went to an American middle school. And, you know, there were just a lot of different cultures in school. And yet each one, no one sat you down at the beginning and said, well, these are our weird cultural quirks in this school. <laughs> they were just like, you were just expected to know, even to the point that. One of the things that really struck me at the time was um, when I was, I was at this American middle school, uh, well, international school in Zaire. And there were also, it was quite informal. Teachers were quite informal with us. We did call them by their surnames, but it was quite a kind of relaxed environment. We didn't wear uniform. Um, we would t- chat, we would sometimes be invited to the teachers' houses, that kind of thing, because it was all on campus. And anyway, and I moved to the UK and to a state comprehensive school, actually in Bristol. And um, it was obviously uniform, ties, everything had to be just right. Like you had to have your bag right, you had to have your shoes right. There was a whole level of control that we did not have in the school in Zaire and the clothes in particular, this whole level of how you were allowed to wear your tie. Are you allowed to have the big part sticking out at the front or does it have to, does the, because there was a whole, it was interesting to see how students subverted the uniform rules in every little way they could. And it was literally, it was literally rebellious to be tucking in the wrong half of your tie and only having the little bit sticking out. And that's what people did. (laughs) It's just like, I don't know. You just start to think after a while, what is this all about? And also, You saw from an outside perspective just how pointless a lot of the things we were being asked to do were, and how a lot of it seemed to be filling our time rather than actually learning. And yet, everybody carried on, (laughs) everybody carried on through the system. So, I think that really made me think initially about where's, and because then, because the other aspect to it, of course, talking about decolonization, is that we, we and I talk about we now as, as the West or as the, my, and my parents were working for development agencies. So it was very much part of that, that education is pushed, school is pushed as a universal good. It's always good. You know, people will fundraise to build schools in the Congo or build schools in Zimbabwe and send children to school, get them by their school uniforms, by their boats. It's totally accepted that that is the best way for a child to be living their childhood. And it's weird if you go to a different country and you go to the schools You know, you go there and they're they're using the same model. Like I've been to schools in India, lots of little children dressed up in their school uniform, sitting in rows, you know, with their pencils and their books. And there's the teacher at the front telling them what to do. And you think this is bizarre. We are so diverse, humans are so diverse. And yet it's like, this is the one idea we've come up with for how you should be spending your childhood. And we're going to propagate it everywhere. We're going to make, you know, if we think it's such a great idea. And if you read the rhetoric, like by UNESCO, or people who are to do with educational initiatives in the the majority world, it's all about how this will reduce inequality, how education is this fantastic thing for everybody. And they don't mean education really, they mean going to school. And yet if you look at school in the UK or school in France, it hasn't solved inequality. There are, we haven't got scores of happy children skipping into school each day. We haven't got flourishing. So the the rhetoric completely does not correspond to the reality. And yet we all behave as if it does. And the weirdest thing about it is that we all know it doesn't because we all went to school. Well, not all of us, but the great majority of us. So, you know, I would say, as I said, I'm a success of the school system absolutely success I got all the way through I got multiple higher degrees yeah I spent nine years in higher education um and yet if I look back I was just being pushed through a system so much of my time I was spent being doing what I was told conforming to other people's requirements and I learned all sorts of unhelpful things about myself in the process I learned that other people know better than me I learned that my ideas need somebody else's validation. And I still have that. You know, when I wrote my book, I wrote it thinking that no one would ever read it, okay? I thought, I wanna do this for me, but it's so niche, right? I mean, it's quite niche, (laughs) it's quite a niche idea. Of course, I didn't know at the time there was gonna be a global pandemic and suddenly everybody was gonna be questioning education. I had no idea that that was gonna happen. So at the time it was this small, you know, real, even a subset of home educators are self-directed learners. So it's quite a niche group. I just thought, right, I'm just gonna write it and I'm gonna write it as if no one is ever gonna read it because I know if I don't do that, I will not be able to write anything because I'll be like, is this right? Is somebody gonna say, no, she's got that wrong. (laughs) She's, you would
0: You would You would filter what you're gonna say. Absolutely, I'd be judging it as, is this gonna get an A?
1: is this something that someone's going to go, tick, (laughs) well done, Naomi, good comment, you know, or is it someone's, someone's going to say, you really haven't understood this properly, go back and look at the stuff, so the only way I could do it was to convince myself this was never going to, never going to see the light of day, it would probably just be my stuff, and you know, I read stuff on the internet that said that, you know, you have to just write your book, basically. You just have to do it. And even if you write it and no one ever reads it, that's okay because you've learned about the process of writing the book. And I think that was very true for me. But again, I have digressed (laughs) a lot from your question, but let me just go back to decolonization of the curriculum, because I think it's something that is really important to me. Um, Having lived in ex-colonized countries as well, and having felt that dynamic as a person from a colonizing country, And having been very aware of that from a very early age, actually, because we lived in Botswana when I was seven and my parents were working in South Africa. So the colonization and racial inequality and oppression was just part of what we were living all the time, was very much there. Um, And also part of very much sort of the history that is behind you that you don't necessarily haven't had any part in, but cannot get rid of. You know, the, if you're in South Africa as a white person, you carry that with you all the time. What has happened to people there? Because it's, you know, when I was in South Africa, it was still happening. So it wasn't even in the past. It's not in the past now either, but it was, you know, you could not get away from your white skin. You could never just be you. And that's something. So I was very aware of that from, from age seven. Um, but Um, With the curriculum, I think the only way to really decolonize education is to get rid of this idea that we have the experts who go in to teach people how to get it right, because that is effectively a colonial idea that we have the the people who know, the people who don't, in this case, they're just children, and we're going to teach them the right stuff. We can fill their heads with the right stuff. And that was very much how the colonial powers worked. I think France, in fact, was even more explicit about that in their, when they write about African colonial, ex-colonies in Africa, it's very much about, we are the, the fathers, we are the patriots, we're going to go and educate these poor people who don't know how to live and we will show them our ways. And I think we have haven't moved on from that in education. We're still doing it in education. It's just that now it's all about charities and educational initiatives and it's all dressed up as a great thing. For other countries but we have to look in our own power structures in our own countries and because we're doing because we're doing it to people here as well it's not just something that's happening to people in Africa it's happening right here right now we are telling children you can't possibly know what's good for you you can't possibly know what you should be doing you need to learn and that's why I think the only way to decolonize the curriculum is to start with power and handing power to children. And often I see people talking about it decolonized curriculum and it comes about it becomes a reading list, or it becomes a we should be teaching black history rather than white history. We should be absolutely, I agree. But the problem is if you're gonna just make gonna make it another should, then what are you gonna do? You're just gonna develop an aversion to it. If it's another thing children have to do, then you've already taken a step into that mindset of. These are things they must do, and I wrote. there's a quote I read I read ages ago from somebody, and I can't remember who it is. I think it was about education, and it was somebody was writing, and they were saying, um, you know, more composers should be compulsory. All children should have to study Beethoven. It was a music educator, so you know, all children must study Beethoven or Bach. And the response was, well, look what that did to Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everybody, all British children have to study Shakespeare. And are we all loving Shakespeare? Are we all going to Shakespeare? No, we see it as schoolwork, and we were all, you know, everybody was made to do it. And I'm sure you have an equivalent in France. Was it I don't know, Moliere or someone that you yeah, everyone
0: Moliere and Sartre and uh, you know De Beauvoir or Zola or you know yes yes
1: you all do it, and by the end. It's lost all joy. And I remember as a child people saying, you know, people used to go to see Shakespeare for fun. They thought it was funny. It's like these you wrote comedies. Well, if you're studying comedies as a (laughs) 12-year-old, Shakespearean comedies, they're not very funny. (laughs) You're not laughing. And you're not going to go to the play for fun. You're going to go because it's your school set text and you have to go. And I think that's a tragedy. And I would really hope we don't do that with the increasing knowledge that we're gaining now about how we need to look at the world in a much wider way and how we come from such a narrow perspective. You know, it's so narrow that the way British history is taught in schools is so narrow and even just going to France made me very aware immediately of how different, for example, the relationship, the French idea of the Second World War is. Particularly the Second World War was something that was very, when I was in Paris, it felt very live that there were you know, discs on the walls, there are signs on the walls saying things like, this many Jewish children were taken from this primary school with the collaboration of the French, which was, you know, amazing. And I thought, wow, this is such a different relationship to the second world war that we have in the UK, where we never talk about any kind of collaboration or anything, because we can very much make it all about those bad Germans did those awful things. And we plucky little Britain, we were here fighting our bit. And I thought, you know, just something like that, which they're two very close countries in the same war and yet they have totally different relationships to it. And I think we can go through our entire lives completely unaware of that until we go somewhere else because you don't just have to go somewhere else actually I suppose the thing that was particularly significant for me in France was that I did speak French so I was able to access all of that because it's not just going somewhere it's being able to read stuff it's being able to understand what people are saying and you can easily go to another country and simply exist in your own little bubble without you don't understand what people say (laughs) you find other people like you you find other British people you know you can easily create a little bubble for yourself Anyway.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah no so so many things you've said of <laughs> so uh, awesome um and I think I, I I completely agree with you I just think that and until recently none of that I was questioning as a parent right. um and I also really agree with the we are saying that our our schools are solving a problem mm. but actually are they so the reason i decided to do the podcast and to start researching for the third book is because i read the article in august about the teenagers teenagers being british teenagers be, being the most unhappy teenagers in the world and yeah. um, and i was just like how mm. how how and 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 as a parent i was just thinking well this is potentially my child Working for you know higher education, I have seen sadly what can happen if a child is so unhappy that they think the only option they have is to take their own life. Yeah. Um, and I I I just that for me Mm. is like one person too many. Yeah. And so that's why I was like, well, surely we as a society are doing this to our young children. Mm. Um and and yet. It's that it's it's I guess it's all sort of really difficult because when when you start having conversations with people where, who are conditioned because we conditioned for our society and are so um I guess stuck or believing in the construct, yeah. how do we challenge it? Because you know, I I, I love the article you wrote about um William, you, uh, you know, um Gavin Williamson. Oh yeah. His speech. Yes. In March. Yeah. Um and that work we I read a chapter of of Paulo Freire's um you know pedagogy of the oppressed. Mm-hmm. Which talks, you know, written in the 70s yeah. and the way he describes education is exactly how know he Gavinson was talking about. Yeah, it's his vision. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so how how do we because not you know I, I guess for me part of the reason I'm doing the podcast and having these conversations is the, how do we bridge the gap between mm. amazing people like yourself who are doing like self-directed learning and people like myself who are sort of like okay what do I do next? Yeah and people who are completely believing in the well actually children should be seen and not heard and Mm. you know how do we bridge the gap how do we bring everybody together
1: I don't think we can bring everybody together that's for sure but I think I think actually the pandemic has done a lot for a lot of people to shake them out because you're not the only person who said to me I have all everything has been challenged by the pandemic you know even it's only just happened a year ago we didn't know that we could be locked down like we are by our government. Really, we didn't. This has never happened before. It's just not part of our awareness. Even I remember when Italy was locked down or when China was locked down, everyone was like, oh, well, that won't happen here. Couldn't happen here. Turns out it could. So I think there's a, when your assumptions like that are shaken, sometimes that starts to shake other assumptions as well. So lots of people, parents have said to me two things. One is that they've said, I've been really shocked by what my children are having to learn and that they're really um, frustrated that they're having to spend their time memorizing stuff that I don't think, I don't know. And I don't think is useful. And also I've been shocked by how much they don't really want to do it because with that's, if your child is at school, there's so much in school that pushes them in one direction. Everybody else is doing well, not doing what they're told, but every you know, there's a system of conformity at school. Definitely. And the teacher has a lot of power to make your life unhappy if you don't do what you're told. The teacher has a backup. They've got the head teacher. They've got a punishment structure around them. And there's not much else you can do because you're not allowed to do the things at school that you might like to do at home. You haven't got your iPad or your books. You know, you're not allowed to just read fiction, which is what I would have liked to do when I was at school. So parents don't see just how much coercion is in the school system because until their children are out of school and then the children say you know what I don't want to do this and the parents like "Mm, where's my head teacher to back me up where's the punishment structure I can't (laughs) what do I do you know and either you fight the child or you say okay maybe there's something different here and I know parents who said right we've given up on the schoolwork, and wow we're having so much more fun now and we're learning so much more than we were because we're not marching through this curriculum anymore so I think things like that are unexpected but do help people challenge it I think people often start to challenge it when their own children don't fit the system in the way they expected. and I think I would probably put myself in that category that as somebody who has conformed to the school system has succeeded in the school system if your children look like they're going the same way it's very hard to challenge that because it's basically you're the winners in the system you know you are being told all the time how great you are and you're being given the grades and the accolades and the prizes and the places at great universities and that sort of thing you're in the you're in a state of positive reinforcement and then if you have a child who clearly isn't going to take that route suddenly it's like a window is opened into a whole nother thing which was always there and I guess it has so many parallels doesn't it in the discourse at the moment about white privilege and about people not being aware of other people's lives and the reality of other people's lives and how you can continue in your own life, without any awareness of what life is like for the other person who may be sitting next to you in the classroom. And I think that having children often has been that moment for lots of parents that I've met. Mm. But I think that people do have to come to it themselves. Because, you know, the, the fundamental, the core of all of this is that people need to make these choices. But I think the more that they see other people making the choices the more they can, people can do it. And that's one of the reasons that I'm quite keen, I have been keen to put myself forwards because I'm a psychologist and it's very, you know, there are lots of home educating parents holding the banner and saying, this is great, you should be doing it. But it's easy for people to say, well, of course you'd say that, you're a home educating parent, you know, you're gonna say that. And I know that many parents have the experience of seeing a professional, a health professional, and most health professions are deeply sceptical of any other way of education than the school. You know, it's almost like we don't have to be taught it because it's part of our it's just deep within our culture that if you see a child who's out of school, one of your aims will be to get that child back into school because that's what we see as success in child term. That is, it's like getting a pet, an adult back into work, in a way, get that child back into school, even if school is such an unhappy place for them. And even if clearly they're not succeeding, it's like we all buy into this idea. And one of the things, one of the kind of discourses that really annoys me in the government is all about how we can close the gap or how we can make up this lost learning. They talk as if, They talk as if, everybody can succeed in this system and they can't. The whole system is set up from the beginning to sort people out, that's what it does. It has to sort people out because that's the point of it. If everybody got nine A's at GCSEs, the GCSE, GCSE would be meaningless and they would scrap it. The whole point of it is to sort everyone out and there's no way that everybody can be a winner. So inequality is baked into the system. And to me, it doesn't really matter on what basis that inequality is baked in, you know, I mean, in the British system, a lot of it is about who your family is, and how wealthy your family is, and what you can which school they can afford to send you to, or whether they can move to the catchment area that has the, the school that you want to go to that kind of thing. But actually it doesn't make any difference to me if we had a purely meritocratic system, whereby everybody started at the same point, I still think it's wrong to make education all about sorting everybody out and then deciding who can get the best jobs the best education by the age of really about 11 I mean or in areas where they have the 11 plus it's pretty well 11 (laughs) where you're sorting that out but it's actually happened much earlier than that because already by the time we're five well the child five children are five or six we already know really who who is going to be who are going to be the ones for whom this is going to be easy who's going to wish through, through the system getting the accolades and who is going to really struggle and then we, we spend the next 13 years baking it in <laughs> um yeah Yes, so.
0: and you have to if you if you don't want to stick to that then mm. there's an awful lot of personal development work that you have to do it's really hard I've yeah i've had i've had to do that for 10 years yeah the person i am right now so you know i did all my studies in france completely different system but basically yep. i wasn't a really academic child yeah um and i had to work extra hard to get mm-hmm. there uh i remember distinctively my french language teacher saying parent uh, parents parents evening your daughter's rubbish and shall amount to nothing that's what he said oh. um i now manage a french language department <sighs> Just like you shall me <laughs> my two fingers up to you um yeah. because I'm quite a, I guess, as my personality is, I'm a fighter. Yeah. But that could have destroyed somebody.
1: Totally. And been- probably did. I mean, but also it's just interesting, isn't it? What's is, what's there in the, the assumptions of the system that he thought that that was a useful and appropriate thing to say educationally? You know, where are the assumptions about children? It's about. <laughs> it's just the, the mind boggles doesn't it as to how that was ever going to be helpful <laughs>
0: possibly he thought that it would motivate me to work harder yeah I don't know that's the only I mean I, com, I'm compassionate now yeah so I think I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt and that's what he he thought um I'm not sure because um I I work from you know I come from a working class background so in the summer yeah. I would be working my dad used to send me you know like find me jobs to do in the summer yeah. to to make me appreciate what would happen if I didn't get the, <laughs> yeah. the, the qualifications okay. yeah Um, and I remember working at the till and he that particular teacher went to my to my tail and went oh so you work here now <laughs> and I actually had the pleasure to say to him no just for the summer I've just had my uh back um avec motion, oui. and so you know like the the equivalent of an A whatever yeah. A in, in yeah. England um and his face really dropped and so just went and I'm going to university <laughs> in September um so that yeah. was my my bit of like right well yeah yeah, side. yeah. Um, but I wonder how many young people have found themselves in the situation like I have. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think I guess that's what's partly driving what I'm trying to do in, in a way.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting. And I mean, the thing is that there's, it's a, there's always, there are always examples of how the system does work in a way. And I think that's why we carry on with it because it's like the hope, isn't it? It's the, the, you know, the person who succeeds, who gets out in quotes of their, their situation and becomes the great success is, is the kind of story that it's a bit like the American dream, I often think. It's like, you know, anyone can succeed through school. <laughs> so you do what you're told for 13 years and then you can, suddenly be a, you can be a successful, you can be a real person, in fact. You can be a person who makes their own choices. Why do we allow that to happen to our children when it's happened to us?
0: I just, that's a really good question. And that's a question that I keep asking myself, particularly Mm. for my youngest, because one of the comments from the teacher, and I really love the teacher. And one of the things that I'm seeing through the podcast and the conversations I'm having is that there are an awful lot of teachers and educators in the system who feel exactly like we do. Yes. um, And who want, to change the system but being in the system don't quite know how to do it it's
1: very hard very very hard and the system is almost getting tighter
0: Mm. because I think
1: the more that you have I think when I was at primary school it was much freer than it is now there was no national curriculum when I was at primary school so and we didn't have tests and the more you put in those kind of things which they call accountability the, the harder it is for any kind of individualized system to work, any kind of system where we respect children's diversity rather than trying to standardize them. Um, but it's very hard for parents, particularly because school is very convenient. And if you work, you need something. I mean, that's why we've en- one of the reasons why we've end- ended up using self-directed schools because home education takes a lot of parental input
0: Hmm. At the time,
1: and I think I really would love it if there were opportunities for children where you could go to a learning community and you could children should be able to access this kind of information this kind of education, even if their parents cannot do it at home. That's yeah. how what I feel. It's it should be part of the educational landscape that you can choose to go to these places.
0: Yeah, and also because in in some way, home education is is also a position of privilege because some people because of their of their situation so mm. if you imagine a one one family single parent yeah single parents yeah. you know they they wouldn't, A, if they're not, you know, imagine parents of, uh, parents who are from immigration, you yeah. know, don't really speak English as, uh, as a first language. How yeah. are they going to give their no. children what a parent like myself isn't exactly. a teacher, an educator? Yeah. Already? No, they can't. Yeah. And
1: that's why you need places where children can meet each other, where children can meet other adults. And particularly in cases like that, you need a place where children can learn the majority language. I think that's really important. I mean, that was very much something I felt when we were moving to France, that I would not have moved to France to home educate, actually, because I felt the children won't learn French. I know they won't because what you know they'll learn how to buy a baguette, but that's it. Whereas I want to have somewhere where they go and they really learn French because at the time, obviously, Brexit and everything well, COVID happened and we've ended up here. But if we'd stayed in France, I would have wanted them to be able to access life in France. And for that, you have to speak fluent French. There's no way around it. So, you know, so um, yeah, I think, we need, we need places where we can pool education. That's the thing. But it shouldn't be that you have to go and conform to this system or else you're on your own, which is pretty well what it's like right now.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: it should be there are other ways to learn, other ways that children can go to meet other adults, to meet other children, to get an education in a different way to school. And I think for that, we have to widen our perspective on what education really is. And we have to stop believing that school is the same as education
0: that is such a fabulous way i feel to end our conversation then. yes that be um you. before i let you go yeah because i'm conscious of your time yeah. i always ask um my guest to if if there was one thing that you would want our you know listener to take away from our conversation beyond yeah. all the amazing thing you've already said mm. what would it be
1: there are other ways to learn school is not the only way to become educated.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much, Naomi. Thank you very much. It's been really nice to talk.
1: Yeah, we loved our conversation. So, thank you so much. Great. I'm going to go. If you want.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. You can also reach me via Twitter at FlourishingHe on LinkedIn, or you can join our private Facebook group, Flourishing Education. All the links are easily available on anchor.fm. Thank you so much, and I hope you are flourishing. Bye for now.